Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We finished up Genesis chapter 36 last week. Boy, that was tedious, wasn't it? Remember all those names? Oh, man, all these people. Who are these, and how do you say their names? <laughs> but we got through it. Resuming then with Genesis chapter 37, starting up a new chapter. And uh, by way of review, just to talk a little bit about ch- chapter 36, that was, if you'll remember, the next big section that comes in the Bible of Genesis. Each of the sections of Genesis are broken up uh, by the key word. You see, the key word is generations, or the account, or the genealogy, of toledot in Hebrew. And it's an indication that you're now in a big, another big section. All right. Mm-hmm. So we saw that at the beginning of chapter 36. We saw it again in, in the middle of that chapter in verse 9. And now we're going to see it again as we start Genesis chapter 37. What does that tell us? It means that that whole chapter in Genesis chapter 37 is its own unit. And we're dismissing it and we're saying, thank you very much, Esau and his family. We're moving on to follow the family that God is going to do the great things through. And that is the family of Jacob and Joseph. Looking then at Genesis chapter 37 and verse 1. Somebody mind reading verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. If you notice that word there, after the word Jacob, now Jacob dwelt. My version says dwelt. Some of yours might have something slightly different, but meaning the same thing. This is a different word than we find typically, or what we've seen typically in the families that preceded him, the generations that preceded him. For his dad, that was Isaac. Isaac was a stranger in the land. Isaac was a sojourner. Isaac was a, he'd, he'd move around in the land, just as his father Abraham would move around in the land. This is the land that's promised to them. But they're moving around, they're not settling down. This word here for Jacob is a settling down word. Jacob is settling down in the land. I mean, what does that conjure up for us? We're all looking forward to a day when we can retire, right? We're like, man, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We're thinking it's this many years, and if you're real close, you're counting it down maybe in months or weeks or days or something like that. Um, I've got some disappointing news maybe for some of you. There's no retirement in God's kingdom, all right? You can retire from your job, but God's still got plans for you. As long as you're living and breathing, God still wants uh, you to be a part of uh, and a participant in the plan that he's got intended for you. So you can retire from your job, but keep working for God. But here in this situation, I don't know. Is Jacob looking forward to a retirement? Is he settling down thinking, oh, the worst of my life is over? Because if that's what he's thinking, he's probably going to be disappointed as we move on. <laughs> he's going to end up moving again to Egypt, all right? But that's uh, later on. Much later on. But here in verse 1, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan or Canaan. Verse 2 says, this is the history of Jacob. So there's that key word. This is the history or, like I said, genealogy or the generations or the account. It's tipping us off that we're moving into the next major section. And this one's a big one. You remember we talked about these big sections? They weren't uniform in the amount of material that's given over to them. So we saw that last one was one chapter long. This one is going to take us to the end of the book. The end of the book, 50 chapters. All right? We've got 50 chapters in this book. This is going to take us to the end. This is the next big section. All right? This is the history of Jacob. 
although it says this is the history of Jacob, we're going to find it's primarily about Joseph. Joseph is going to get more material in this section than his father, Jacob. But that's not unusual in these big sections. In the history of Terah, the account of Terah, the predominant figure was his son, Abraham. All right. In the account of Abraham, the predominant material was Isaac. All right. So it's not uncommon for the writer to tell you this is the history of, and it turns out that it's going to be more about the son than it is about the dad. All right. Uh, it's not to say Jacob's not going to be included in the material. By all means, he will be. Uh, but for the most part, you're going to see most of the material is going to be devoted over to Joseph. And then you've got a material having to do with Jacob. And then other players would be Simeon, Judah, Benjamin, and also a Pharaoh. All right. And then it, less and less for other people that are involved later on as we get to it. This is the history of Jacob. And then oh, jumps right into Joseph. Joseph being 17 years old. Anybody ever been 17? I think all of us have been 17. Think back to when you were 17 years old. Do you want to have your life written about in the Bible when you were a 17-year-old? Okay, that'd be embarrassing. But anyway, Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock. Does anybody have anything like was shepherding the flock? Tending the flock. flock. Okay, the word that's back there behind that, behind the tending or the feeding, and you can hear it more in the tending versions, it suggests that Joseph's kind of the one in charge, but we're going to find out he's not the one that's alone. He's not alone out there. All right. So Joseph is feeding the flock or tending the flock with his brothers. But we're going to find out it's going to narrow down for us that it's only a, a smaller group than that. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah. How many sons do you remember Bilhah had? You didn't know there was going to be a quiz, did you? <laughs> Bilhah had two. That was Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah. How many? Two. All right. I see Esther's holding up her fingers there. So you've got Dan and Naphtali were the sons of Bilhah. You've got Gad and Asher that are the sons of Zilpah. All right. So Joseph is out there with these four brothers. Who's the youngest in the group? He is. Of those five, he's the youngest. All right. In the birth order, what number did he come? Out of the 12 boys, what number was Joseph? He's number 11. He's younger than everybody in the family except for Benjamin. All right. So here is Joseph, birth order number 11, and he's out there with these four brothers. Their birth order was five, six, seven, and eight. So brothers five, six, seven, and eight, and Joseph, number 11, he's younger than they are. Yet it sounds like maybe he might have a leadership role of sorts. All right. The commentators mentioned that, but it's not for sure. All right. I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. So he's out there tending the flock. He's feeding the flock. He's with his brothers, specifically the four brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And they are the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Who were Bilhah and Zilpah? Yes, the maidservants. If you remember, Jacob went over and he decided, oh, I want to marry I want to marry Rachel. She's so beautiful. I'm going to work seven years to marry Rachel. And then what happens? He wakes up after his marriage ceremony and he's not married to Rachel. He's married to Leah, the older sister that was less desirable. Mm-hmm. So he's married to Leah and then he marries Rachel and Rachel comes with a maid and Leah comes with a maid. Well, these are the maids. All right. So these are the maids and these are the sons of the maids. So Joseph, he is the son of the favorite wife who has now passed away. And these four are the sons of the maids. So it starts to, you start to get a picture, then maybe his dad did put him in charge of these. Even though he's younger, that's a possibility. All right? And so um, with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report. Anybody else have something different? Joseph brought a bad report. 
of them to his father. This is the first use or the first uh, mention of a, a bad report, all right, in the Bible. Uh, what would you call this? <laughs> if somebody snitching. snitching. All right, we got a snitch on our hands. All right, <laughs> or tattling. All right, somebody might uh, throw tattling out there or gossiping, but we don't know what that looked like. All right, we don't know what it looked like when the information was conveyed from Joseph about his brothers to Dad. Maybe they're getting a meal ready, and it's just Dad and Joseph. And Dad says, "So how how are they doing?" And Joseph says, "Well, you know, uh, they sleep a lot. They're really lazy." I mean, we don't know what it looked like. Or did Joseph volunteer? Dad, I got to tell you something. And right in front of the brothers at the dinner table, maybe. These guys are slacking off or whatever the case might be. We don't know what that looked like. Was it something dad had to extract out of Joseph? Was he reluctant to give the information? Or was Joseph volunteering and just gushing with all the bad report that he had on them? We don't know. We don't know. That's more along with my kids, though. That's more with your kids? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Last, I know. Yeah. Personal experiences with 17-year-olds, we're starting to, like, draw on those experiences and go, yeah, I can imagine what that looked like. <laughs> exactly right. Is it uncommon for one child to try to make the others look bad, to make them look good? Uh, we've seen that once in a while. You know, that wouldn't be uncommon. That, that's a possibility here as well. I remember hearing somebody one time say about Joseph, about this character that we're just diving into right here, that uh, nothing bad was ever said of Joseph. That was the way it was presented to me. But after doing this study, uh, I'm not so sure. All right. And it's funny because you look at the different commentators. I look at about a dozen different commentators as I prepare for the study, and there seems to be a divide. There's like the team that's pro-Joseph, didn't do anything bad, and another team that's like, yeah, Joseph, he's really, you know, he's really messing it up, but he'll get it right later, you know? So I can't tell you for sure what it is, but I'm no longer am I going to be the person that says, well, the Bible says nothing negative about Joseph because I can't say that that's for sure because right here it could be tattling. It could be snitching. That's kind of what it looks like. All right, so there's one thing to throw out to you right there. By the way, Joseph being 17 years old, we haven't heard anything about him since his birth, since his naming. That was pretty much the last we heard, other than, you know, that uh, uh, when they met Esau and Dad arranged for his favorite wife and his favorite son to be in a particular position. I mean, about him as a person, though, we haven't heard much at all. His life's been pretty obscure up to this point. So no, no matter what his intentions were, whether he did it honestly, naively, or boastfully, or arrogantly, no matter how that information was conveyed to Dad, you can imagine the effect it's going to have on the brothers, particularly those four. It's probably going to be like, dang, thanks, bro, you know, looking out for me, watching my back? No, it doesn't seem like it. You know, the brothers are going to have some resentment toward Joseph, all right, no matter how you slice it. There's nothing he's going to really be able to say that's going to help them to go, all right, that's cool. I'm, I'm okay with that. No, they're going to they're gonna hold resentment toward him, and uh, we're going to see that as we go. By the way, that, that mention of a bad report, that same language, that same uh, phrase in the Hebrew is actually used for the, what the spies, remember the spies were sent into the promised land, and we're going to, well, that's way in the future from our perspective where we're at here in Genesis. Spies are sent into the land, they come back, they bring a bad report of the land. Yeah, it's a great land, but I tell you what, there's giants there. We're, gonna, we're like grasshoppers in their sights, and it poisons the whole camp, right? That's the same language that's used here that we see that's happening uh, with Joseph. It's the whispering of hostile people. All right. By the way, the information that he gave to his dad, it may not be untrue. It very well could be true, but was it necessary, right? There's plenty of things that we might have that we could say. That might be true, but is it necessary? Because what do you call a person who says things freely when maybe it's not necessary? It might be true. You call that a gossip. 
right? Gossiping is not something that the Bible <laughs> promotes, all right? Uh, in fact, quite the contrary. So even if it was something that's true, it, you know, ask yourself, is this something necessary? Is this something that needs to be said? Who knows? Maybe we have in, in this verse here the seeds of that phrase that eventually came to be, if you can't say something, I don't say anything at all, <laughs> all right? We could be seeing something of that going on here. So uh, regarding his position there, it looks like perhaps dad has put him in charge of these four sons who are older than him, but sons of the, of the maidservants. Uh, that's a possibility that he's put in charge of them. Uh, also, why would he go to the point of saying these things that he said to dad? Well, we talked about that could be required of him. You know, dad solicited the information. He could have voluntarily put it out there. There's also the possibility that in growing up and watching his dad's interactions with Laban, and his dad's interactions with Esau, and maybe even stories that dad told him about, yeah, you know, I was a cheater all my life. You know, I was a liar and a conniver and a deceiver, and I really have regrets there. Maybe dad told those stories, that maybe he adopted a, you know, honesty is the best policy type of attitude. That's a possibility as well. Verse 3. Verse 3. Now Israel. Wait, who's this guy? We've been talking about Jacob. Who's Israel? Now... (laughs) Remember how Jacob got his name changed. But it hasn't been real consistent in its usage. So sometimes we'll see Jacob, sometimes we'll see Israel. So far, what have we looked at? We've seen Jacob twice in just these few verses here. In verse 1, now Jacob dwelt in the land. In the next verse, this is the history of Jacob. All right. So it hasn't been real consistent. Here we are in verse 3, and now it's Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph. Oh, that's great. No problem so far, right? All right. Now, Israel loved Joseph. Oh, dear. What does is, what is the rest of that say? Somebody mind reading the next half of the verse? <laughs> More than any of his other sons. Oh. More than any of his other sons. All of a sudden, there's a problem, right? Dad loves boy number 11 more than boy number one and more than boy number two. And three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and ten. Oh, and twelve. <laughs> he loves this one out of the twelve. Have we seen favoritism as we've been moving through and watching these families? Do you remember Abraham, right? When God appeared to Abraham and told Abraham, you're going to have a son by Sarah. He already had a son. He already had a son by Hagar. And that was Ishmael. And you remember Abraham, what did he say? He says, but... but Wait, there's Ishmael. Even though God was saying, you're going to have a son, it it wasn't received without concern. It wasn't received wholeheartedly, like, dismiss Ishmael altogether, I'm I'm ready for it. It was hesitation. And then do you remember, once he had Isaac through Sarah, it was Ishmael and Isaac, and do you remember when Isaac was being weaned, and Ishmael, there was something that happened there where he made fun of him or something, and mom, Sarah, blows up and goes... Get that boy and his mom out of here, right? Because Sarah, she's going to favor Isaac. Hagar is going to favor Ishmael. And what did we see on Abraham's part? He was concerned. And God had to appear to him and say, go ahead and send him away, right? So it almost looked like a little bit of favoritism on Abraham's part for Ishmael and Sarah's part for Isaac. And it created grief in that weaning party. How about Isaac? Isaac ends up having Jacob and Esau, right? And you remember about Isaac, he loved Esau because Esau was able to bring home the game and bring make some good tasty stew out of it, good tasty food out of it. But mom, 
favored the other brother, right? So, so far, what have we seen? We've seen this one-on-one thing going on. There's a favored one and a non-favored one, a favored one and a disfavored one. Here, we're going one favored one and 11 disfavored? If, it, if there's trouble when it's one-on-one, do you suppose there's going to be trouble when it's one versus 11? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this guy, Israel, Jacob, he's already been on the wrong end of favoritism with dad. Dad loved his brother. And mom loved him. But also when he went and got married, right? And you remember that wasn't the person he wanted to marry. So what happens? You have a favorite wife and you have a not favorite wife. And then you have the two maidservants that are also serving as childbearing vessels for, for the family. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. So you've got four women and you've got one favorite out of the four. Now we're taking it and we're upping the stakes. One favorite out of 11. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Because he was the son of his old age, what does that sound like? When it says the son of his old age, doesn't that make it sound like because he was the baby in the family? He was the littlest one, right? Is that the case? No. No. (laughs) He's not the youngest one. He's number 11, not number 12. Benjamin is the baby. He's favored over Benjamin. All right? And Benjamin's the son of the same favorite mom. So why would he pick Joseph over Benjamin? Esther, you want to say He's something? He's the firstborn of his most loved Good. wife. Yep. He's the firstborn of his most loved wife. Mm-hmm. And that birth didn't have any tragedy associated with it. It was good memories of his wonderful favorite wife giving birth to Joseph. Because with the birth of Benjamin, his favorite wife dies. So I think we're starting to see pieces of the puzzle as to what's going on here. Some of what's going on here when he picks him as his favorite. And then what? And also he made him a tunic of many colors. All right. Also he made him a tunic. So dad, dad could choose favorite and keep it to himself. I mean, that would be, that would be difficult because it's going to show up somewhere. But here he's not even trying to keep it a secret. He's giving his son this special garment, this special robe. All right, there's two words here put together. All right, the one for the tunic is a normal word. It's covering. It's a garment, okay? Uh, The first time we see this word used is when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they've sinned. And they're hiding because they recognize, oh my goodness, I'm naked. Mm -hmm. And God provides them the garments, all right, from the skins of animals. We see the first death. God kills these animals to take their skins to give to man and woman to cover them, all right? And it's that word that is used here as well. It's a word, it just means covering, all right? It's usually an outer covering or a garment. But the other word that's combined with it, some of your translations have many colors. Some of your translations might have something like long sleeves or adorned. ornate. Or ornate, okay? This word is only used here. And it's not known for sure what it means, but it means something special. All right. You can tell by the context, it means something special. So there's something about the garment that was given to Joseph that was beyond what was given to the brothers. And it's something special about it in and of itself. So uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. All right. I get that. But we're not sure if it was colors that was what set it apart. All right. It might have been colors. Like I said, it might have been long sleeves or there's a possibility that the word is related to a word that means to the wrists or to the ground. So it would go down to your ankles and down to your wrists. Uh, what would be the significance of that? Well, what happens is it's kind of hard to do manual labor when you're wearing something that's nice, right? So if you're going through your day wearing this robe that dad gave you, 
And Dad has some chores that might require, you know, you to get dirty. I'm sorry. You guys go ahead and do them. I I don't want to get this robe dirty because Dad gave me this really special robe, and it would be bad for me to get it dirty. So I'm not going to do the job. You guys go do the job while I supervise. Oh, awkward. Okay, that might be creating some trouble there. (laughs) By the way, when we're talking about favoritism, like I was mentioning just, just now, uh, we talked about the various examples that we saw. There's one other example that possibly could come to mind, and that might be Cain and Abel. I want to address the Cain and Abel one for a second here because this is going to come up, this Cain and Abel thing. Cain and Abel, they are the first two brothers mentioned in the Bible. And you remember Abel came and brought an offering to God, and Cain brought an offering to God. Abel's offering was accepted, and Cain's offering was not. And there's all kinds of speculation as to what was the difference. What was it about Abel's offering that made his acceptable to God, and what was it about Cain's offering that made it unacceptable? We don't know for sure. But God goes to Cain and says, I can tell you're angry. (laughs) And Cain wants to murder his brother. And God says, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. All right, You must conquer it. And what does Cain do? The opposite. He gives into it and he kills his brother. Okay? So what was it in Cain's mind that was going on? Cain was jealous. Cain was jealous of, of the acceptance that Abel was able to find in God's sight that Cain was not able to find in God's sight. All right? And so in that situation, what is it? It probably looks like from Cain's perspective, God favors my brother Abel. He's God's favorite and I'm not. You know, and that spins him up into a murderous rage till he kills his brother. But here's what I want to say about that. It's not the same situation. Here's why. Because what that situation is, is God's blessings upon obedience and God's withholding of blessings when somebody's disobedient. And that you can look in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a great place. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is telling people, Moses inspired by God, telling the people, that when you get to the promised land, here's what you need to do. You need to divide half the camp. Half the camp's going to be on top of this mountain. Half the camp's going to be on top of this mountain. And it's going to be this big... Uh, you remember assemblies when you're in school? Everybody go to the assembly, and it's like when it, all kinds of people are gathered together, there's an enthusiasm that goes along with that. This is a big assembly, all right? So you got this big assembly, half the people over here, half the people over here. Your job is to, is to shout the blessings for those who are obedient to God. And your job over here on top of this mountain, you guys are to shout out all the cursings that are to come down upon us if we're disobedient to God. So it was the blessings and the cursings being shouted from these two very close mountains, all right? And what that was is was to make an impression upon you, all right? You as one of the attendees in the midst of this, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And you're hearing, if you are obedient to God, you will be blessed by God. If you're disobedient to God, you will not be blessed. You'll be in disfavor. All right, you'll experience the cursings. That applies in our lives as well. Deuteronomy is one of my favorite books, and one of the reasons for that is because it makes it really clear. It makes it really clear that God pays attention to the way that you live, and good choices lead to good results, and bad choices lead to bad results. God blesses those who are obedient. God curses those who are disobedient. That hasn't changed. Now, a lot of people, though, once they hear that, they go, oh, but wait a minute, that's, you know, you're saying salvation is by works. No, it's not. We're saved by grace through faith and not by works, lest anyone should boast. But the very next verse says, but we have good works prepared for us in advance to do. So it's expected that we will participate in good works without those being what saves us. All right, we're saved by the grace. The good works should follow as the proof that we are saved. All right, that was way long way around. But what what I want to say about this is there's no favoritism with God. There's no favoritism with God. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 actually says that. 
for there is no partiality with God. In fact, that's the first fill in the blank that you've got there on your sheets. The first one, there is no partiality or favoritism with God. You can put that in there, either one, partiality or favoritism. And uh, that's from Romans chapter 2, verse 11. There's lots of places that you can find the same idea, uh, but that one just is, it doesn't get any clearer than that. There's no favoritism with God. Verse 4, chapter 37, verse 4. When his brothers, when his brothers, oh, that's an interesting use of the word right there. I mean, it just means the brothers. It just means the other 11. But the very first time that we run across brothers is the Cain and Abel story. Hmm. Second kind of loose tie to the Cain and Abel story. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. That phrase there, could not speak peaceably to him, actually means could not say shalom to him. They could not say peace be to thee. Mm -hmm. The peace be to thee, that was, it was expected. It was common and expected that that's the way you would greet somebody, an acquaintance, a family member, even a stranger. You could use peace be unto you. To withhold that from a brother was the height of a violation of the courtesy that was expected. All right. So by them not participating in the peace be unto you to your brother, that suggests bad things are coming, as we'll see as we move on. They could not speak peaceably to him. By the way, I mentioned that some of the commentators are very uh, pro-Joseph, you know, and saying he never did anything wrong and whatnot. And so they're looking, and one of them says, you know, if you look here, it's not necessarily that they're mad at Joseph. It could be that they're mad at Jacob. And you know, what are you talking about? It's, and then they pointed out this way. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him, who's that speaking of? That's Joseph. More than all his, that's Joseph's brothers, they, that's the brothers, hated him. They said that him could be Jacob and could not speak peaceably to him, Jacob. I don't actually find that convincing, though, because the very next verse. <laughs> all right. But just saying, it's out there. All right. How do you as a 17-year-old, how would you be feeling in the midst of this family situation? I, I've got to believe that at this point you're starting to get confused. <laughs> because I didn't ask for dad to pick me as the favorite. I didn't ask for the coat. Now my brothers hate me. What am I going to do about this? I don't know. But by no fault of my own, you could suggest, uh, my brothers all hate me. But my dad, you know, his love for me maybe makes up for it. I don't know. Moving on. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. Hopefully you make some good choices. Please, Joseph, make some good choices. Then Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Oh, man. All right, so uh, the indication here that we have that Joseph had a dream, this is the first time somebody has a dream in Genesis, in the Bible, that isn't from God, that isn't directly mentioned this was from God. God appeared to him in a dream. That's not what we have here. He has a dream. I have dreams. <laughs> some are from God and some aren't. I'd say most of them are not from God. <laughs> Wake up with weird dreams. Um, he had a dream, but we don't know for sure whether it's from God or not. And as you read through the material, that creates a tension as you're reading through it because you're wanting to know, is this a dream from God or is this, you know, he had bad pizza last night. <laughs> All right. Now, Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. When it says even more, that's a play on Joseph's name. Remember Joseph when he was named by mom? When Rachel gave birth to Joseph, she, she picked that name. And the name means, may he add. It means added, right? And her idea was, I want another one. <laughs> you know, God heard me. I had a son. Here he is, but I want another one. And so she names him, may he add, right? It's a play on, it means add. They hated him even more, all right? So it actually has like Joseph's name, kind of the sound of Joseph's name in the middle there in the Hebrew. 
And then uh, moving on, what do we see? The Jewish study Bible note says this, like the bad reports that he brought to his father in verse 2, his telling his brothers the dream evidences Joseph's immaturity and lack of foresight, both of which will be dramatically remedied as his tale unfolds. Uh, It's going to be quite a few chapters before we get there. But anyway, verse 6, so he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. It could be innocent enthusiasm. Hey, I had this weird dream. I want to tell you guys about it. Or it could be arrogance. It could be naivete. It could be chutzpah. <laughs> All right. Or hubris. Uh, verse 7. Somebody mind reading verse 7. We were building sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. Hmm. hmm. If you have this dream and you're the disfavored number 11 son in the family, are you going to are you going to be broadcasting this typically? Uh, it's hard to imagine how this could turn out well for you if you're Joseph, right? Uh, so you know what a sheaf is, right? You're going through, imagine wheat or grain. You take a sickle and you cut, you know, as much as you can maybe fit in a hand handful or something. And then you would bind it, you would tie it up, and you could stand it upright, right? So your field that was just as waving fields of grain is now, you know, harvested in the sense, and, and all these sheaves are out there. There. And so apparently that's something that's common that they're participating in. And the brothers hear this and they get the agricultural image of it, but they also get what the meaning is of it, as we'll see very soon. When you see here, there we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose. The first time that word arose shows up is actually when Cain arose to kill his brother Abel. So, again, another loose connection with the Cain and Abel story. This sounds like this could turn out bad. It's just maybe some foreshadowing. I don't know. Maybe we're reading between the lines, but there is something that, I don't know, stands out about that. Uh, by the way, in him telling this dream, it was it was typical in the family that the firstborn was the son of most honor. All right? That was the son that would be honored the most. So in him telling this dream, he's violating that typical arrangement. All right? He's basically a son number 11 saying, hey, I had this dream, suggesting maybe it was from God, that I'm in charge of all you guys, including number one, right? So it's kind of like a slap in the face of all of them and two slaps in the face for son number one, all right? So the brothers are upset with Joseph. The interesting thing, though, it doesn't sound like the author who penned these words is upset with Joseph. I don't know. It just kind of stands out. It's kind of strange. Verse 7, one more thing. A sheaf. We talked about that's probably got grain. It's probably grain. That's the image we should have in our minds. It's interesting as the story of Joseph unfolds, as we go through the book of Genesis, how perfectly fitting that image is because it's going to be the grain when he's in Egypt that he's going to be put in charge of that's going to save his family. All right, so it's kind of interesting to see that connection. Verse 8, And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? Doesn't sound like dad's here. It sounds like it's one brother and the other 11 brothers. All right. So they hated him even more. There it is again. That's his name stuck in there as the ad even more. They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So, so far, I'm not seeing any good choices that he's making along here. Maybe some of these were innocent. Maybe not. But it's sounding like this whole arrangement is got Joseph over here in the in the brother's minds. Right? They don't like this kid. They hate this kid. If we can do whatever we can do and be a part of this family without him, it would be a good day if we could just get rid of him. That's probably what's going on in their minds. All right? By the way, shall you indeed reign over us? That's the word that would be used as a king over their subjects. 
So it's almost as if they're saying, are you going to be our king? Really? You think you're going to be king over us? And the other word for dominion is what a dictator would be. Are you going to be the dictator in our lives? I don't, I don't think so. You know, not if we can help it, that type of thing. By the way, dreams in the Bible, a lot of times you find dreams that are really obscure. And a lot of times the person who had the dream has to seek some assistance in interpreting it. And it's usually really hard to find somebody that can provide you an interpretation for your kind of weird dream that you had. That's not the case here. The brothers have no problems understanding what this dream means. And, uh, yeah, they don't, need to, they don't need to seek anybody's guidance or counsel as to what, uh, what it seems to be suggesting in his dream. Verse 9. Somebody mind reading verse 9. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. <laughs> Thank you, Gabriella. <laughs> Okay, so if I wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to Joseph with the first dream episode, I would think the way that that ended with the brothers, you know, getting in his face and saying, who do you think you are? That if I had dream number two, I'd probably say, you know what? I should learn from my mistake. I probably shouldn't have said anything after that first dream. Here he is. He's having a second dream and he's disclosing the information in this one as well. All right, Joseph, not a good choice. And we'll find in attendance his dad as well as the brothers in this one as well. So what do we have here? So it sounds like, like I said, I, I want to give Joseph the benefit of the doubt for the first dream. But now that we're on dream number two and he's telling them dream number two, it almost sounds like he's boasting. So it sounds like he's been tattling on his brothers and now he's boasting in front of his brothers. Uh, here's what I would say, and it, fill it in there. Uh, you've got it uh, your seeds of application. Number two, tattling and boasting. Put away those childish things. Tattling and boasting. Put away those childish things. You probably recognize some of the language I'm using is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul's encouraging all of us. To grow up, to grow up spiritually. In that chapter in particular, it it means to love more. All right, it's to have love in your life more than you used to. Putting away the childish things here in this chapter, tattling and boasting. Put away those childish things. James chapter four verse sixteen says, "But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil." And then Proverbs twenty six twelve says, "Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him." So it's not looking good. It's looking like Joseph is running out of the giving him the benefit of the doubt. Matthew Henry has an observation here that's kind of neat to look at. He says, Joseph dreamed of his preferment, but he did not dream of his imprisonment. There's coming a day in his life he's going to be thrown into prison, and it seems like that's not part of the dream. He didn't recognize that. Maybe God reveals to us the things to keep us going, to encourage us. But sometimes there's pitfalls along the way. <laughs> Joseph's life, there's a pitfall coming. Uh, but he only sees the good stuff. Uh, verse 10. Somebody might reading verse 10. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I have your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So you remember... What was the dream? It was involving stars, right? We had the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Who's the sun? Who's the moon? Who's the 11 stars? Dad is giving his interpretation of what he thinks the sun and the moon are. According to Dad's interpretation, who's the sun? 
S U N, I should say. He is. <laughs> he is. He's the sun. Who's the moon? His mom, right? Joseph's mom. So you've got the sun and the moon and then the 11 stars. Who would the 11 stars correspond to? His brothers, right? So it's not too hard to figure out. Except, wait a minute. Rachel already died. Rachel's already dead. The moon, mom, has already died. Mm-hmm. So the commentators don't miss this either. And so some of them suggest, well, maybe this whole second dream thing was actually before mom died. What's the problem with that? The problem with that was it would be 10 stars, not 11. Because Benjamin is one of the stars. So you've got a point in time where, yeah, there's the sun and the moon, but only 10 stars. Or there's the sun, no moon, and 11 stars, because Rachel dies right when Benjamin's born. Mm-hmm. So some of the other commentators suggest, well, maybe mom's position has been filled by somebody else. That was typical. You would fill that position with somebody else. If that's the case here, we don't know who's filling the position. It could be Leah. It was the first person he married. It was his favorite wife's sister. Or it could be Bilhah, which is the maidservant of Joseph's mom, of Rachel. We don't know who it is. So it's kind of interesting that it says that. Or other ones say it's just a picture that means the whole family is going to be dependent on what God's going to do with Joseph. And no matter how you slice it, yeah, that is actually what's going to end up happening. God's going to do this great thing. He's going to save the whole family through Joseph. So the dream does fit in that way. Moving down, regarding this word rebuke. This is the first time the word rebuke shows up in the Bible. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4 says this, Take heed of yourselves if your brother sins against you. Rebuke him. Rebuking is something that's appropriate in our Christian life. There is a place for it, and there's one place. 2 Timothy 4, 2, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Another place that rebuke fits in our Christian walk. 1 Timothy 5.20, Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. And Titus 2.15, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Your seat of application number three right there, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Here's a dilemma. How is it that we have authority to rebuke, especially if we're not perfect? Right? If you see something in somebody's life and you feel like, am I supposed to say something or not? I'm not perfect. That's the first thing you're going to think, right? You're going to think the devil's whispering in your ear. Who are you to say to them, get this area of your life straightened out? It's like the whole log in your eye, piece of something in your brother's eye type of thing, right? It doesn't say you can't address them. It says, first, get the log out of your own eye. All right? So what does that advocate for us? We should live lives that are worthy of this calling that we have. We should be striving to live to honor God, not bring dishonor to him. And when we're in a position where maybe God is saying you need to say something to that person, rebuke them. It doesn't have to be harsh. It can be in love. You can rebuke a person in love. And then also, where does the authority come from? It's not from your own righteousness. It's from God's standard. So if you go to the person and hey, look, I'm not perfect, but I just feel I'm supposed to say something to you. And it's not my standard that I'm trying to impose upon you. It's God's word. And God's word would say you need to examine this area in your life and maybe make some changes. All right, that kind of thing. Verse 11, And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His father kept the matter in mind. That reminds me of two passages from the Gospels where Mary has little episodes of things that are happening in this little baby Jesus growing up that she sees happening in his life. And it's something that catches her attention and she dwells upon, kind of stores it up in the back of her mind. If you've had kids, 
you've probably had this happen where there are some moments in raising your kids that stand out from others because it was something that caught your attention, something so strange, right? As if you thought to yourself, is this suggesting something I'm going to see played out again later in the future? Where we see dad here, he's storing up these ideas in his heart. Why is that? Because he sees something and it's making an impression on him. And he's at, it's almost as if he's asking himself, what is God going to do with this life? There's something about what I just saw that stands out to me. File it away because I'm not sure what it means, but it looks like God may be up to something here. All right. Mary kind of had the same experience. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood above them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. As if to ask, what is God up to with this child? What is God doing in this life? Another place, same chapter, but later on. Luke chapter 2, verses 48 through 51. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother didn't know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. She sees something and she's saying to herself, what is it that I'm seeing? It looks like God's doing something in this person's life. God is doing something in your life and in the lives of your children just as well. We are all still under construction. That would be your seat of application number four. We're all still under construction. God's not done with us yet. God is still making us into the person that he wants us to become as we look like him more, as we become like him more, from spending time with him more. We're all still under construction. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, God that you're not done with this yet. Because if you were, I'm sure all of us, Lord, would be able to say, 
I don't think this is where I'm supposed to be yet. We acknowledge that there's still a lot of work in our lives, and we're glad that you're the foreperson over this job, doing the construction in our lives, changing us into who you want us to become. We pray, God, that you would help us to desire your word and to uh, just to be saturated with it. We pray that your spirit would find uh, easy plowing in our lives and in, in our hearts. And we pray, God, that truth would sprout and that uh, we would be able to recognize truth from a lie. We thank you, God, for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. You guys have a wonderful week.